Hello, and welcome to episode number 54 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacademian. Over the last several months, we've been discussing how the totality of the data behind the UFO phenomenon may include different patterns that perhaps suggest that different actors and agendas serve as distinct parts of that whole. Distinguishing segments within the meta-category known as the UFO phenomenon can perhaps help us to better understand what's actually going on. Within that totality, for instance, is a subsection of data involving apparent alien abduction. Here we're speaking about human beings first encountering evidently non-human corporeal entities in their homes, as well as elsewhere, and subsequently being taken by these aliens on board what appeared to be spacecraft. Once on board these apparent otherworldly craft, these individuals often find that strange, invasive, and frequently uncomfortable medical procedures are performed. While medical treatment for various conditions that may be ailing these abductees is sometimes the goal, much more often the medical procedures seem to revolve around some kind of vast reproductive scheme, often as part of what appears to be a wide-reaching hybridization program where offspring who are part human and part gray alien appear to be being bred and then raised by these non-human others. The data we've gathered over the decades on these kinds of encounters also suggests that these interactions between these non-human alien others and usually individual human beings begin early in childhood, even though it's sometimes only in adulthood that these early memories are successfully retrieved, sometimes as a result of some kind of triggering associative event or via the aid of therapeutic tools such as hypnotic regression. These particular kinds of experiencer accounts are widespread. The fact that these particular alien abduction experiences share so many common data points suggests we can really learn a lot by really embarking on a close examination of the evidence. And that's precisely what we'll be doing over the next several episodes. To begin that process, we'll be delving into a specific case that fits well within the boundaries of this particular kind of experience or account. Terry Lovelace is a man who's encountered these gray aliens since childhood. That ongoing but usually intermittent interaction took a shocking turn when he was a young man in the military. Events in one particular scenario depicted in his book Incident at Devil's Den seem to suggest these alien greys have wielded an alarming and overarching control over his behavior, intentions, perception, and memory. A deep dive into the astonishing but revealing and all too familiar case of Terry Lovelace, alien abductee, is the topic of this, the 54th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, I would just like to state again that we shouldn't prematurely assume that superficial differences equate the clear demarcation of distinct patterns revealing different groups with different agendas within the UFO phenomenon. But nevertheless, it is a worthwhile endeavor to, as we pursue the totality of the data, to keep our eye out for such possibilities. And speaking of perusing the data, 
We're going to discuss an alien abduction account today and go into it in some detail over a couple of different episodes actually, because I really want to focus in on this kind of case because there are so many like it. There are so many common data points, as I pointed out in the introduction. Now, we're talking today about Terry Lovelace and his account. Much of this is recorded in his book, Incident at Devil's Den. This book recounts an astonishing case of alien abduction, along with a subsequently intense investigation by the USAF Office of Special Investigations. Now, who is Terry Lovelace? He is yet another one of the countless people all around the world who have endured these experiences. These are average people. It happens to a wide swath of our population. In Lovelace's case, after his time in the military, he would go on to a successful career in law as a felony prosecutor, eventually becoming an assistant attorney general for the U.S. territory of American Samoa and state's attorney for Vermont's Board of Medical Practice. That's what he went on to do after his time in the military. But we want to begin this investigation, the coverage of this case, by focusing in on Lovelace's childhood and an incident that happened while he was in the military, again, recounted in his book, Incident at Devil's Den. Now, in this book, Lovelace actually jumps around a fair bit, but I think it's helpful to retell the events in chronological order because it helps us understand what actually happened in terms of the timeline. Now, for Lovelace, this began in childhood, as it does for many abductees and contactees. In Lovelace's case, when he was a child in the 1960s, he would experience what he called monkey men suddenly appearing in his room. These were small beings, clearly not human, that he believed, in retrospect, were gray aliens. But they would wear a strange disguise, trying to appear something like monkeys, apparently because they thought that would scare him less. Now, speaking of that, part of the interesting dilemma we run into when we think about encounters between human beings and these alien others is how often they seem to have, sometimes it appears, a not very robust understanding of human behavior and human psychology. One can't help but wonder why they don't appear differently so as to not surprise us, not to shock us so much. Perhaps this is because they just are so different than us and don't understand our psychology, even after this much time when they've been studying us. Again, perhaps this is not surprising considering we're a different species entirely. But let me quote from a section in the book where Lovelace recounts being interrogated by his mother after he had one of these encounters with these monkey men who were actually small gray aliens. Quoting from the book, quote, Apologetically, I began, Mom, I'm sorry about last night. It just scared me so bad. She said, Terry, I need you to tell me about these nightmares so your dad and I can help you. What do these monkeys do that scares you? Mom, they want me to come with them. Like I told you before, there are four of them and they're all wearing a mask. They all wear the same mask too, I said, trying to explain something so bizarre with the limited vocabulary of an eight-year-old. She pleaded, help me understand, are you afraid of all monkeys, like the ones at the zoo or monkeys on the TV? No, mom, it's just these four same monkeys that come in my room. They look like real monkeys, but not like on TV. These are the monkey men. The monkey men scare me. They want me to go with them. Sometimes I think I'll go. Sometimes I even think I went with them before, I said. My mother pressed on. But you know monkeys can't hurt you. Have you tried telling them to go away? 
You just tell them you don't want to play with them anymore. You can do that. You can tell them to leave you alone and order them to get out. You can do that. Okay, Mama, I'll try. I'll tell them to get out of my room and leave me alone. I'm afraid that they might take me away with them and I might not be able to come home. I was crying now. Honey, I, I don't know. You just must try. We'll leave the hall light on at night now, but you can't sleep with mom and dad anymore. It's not fair to wake up your sisters by screaming either." Unquote. Now in that small section I just read from, we understand how difficult this must have been for a young Terry, for an eight-year-old to try to explain to his mother what's really been going on. Parents, it seems, sometimes think that children going through these kinds of things are confusing fantasy with reality. The parents assume perhaps he's watched TV that he shouldn't have, seen too many sci-fi shows, or been scared by monkeys he's seen at the zoo, and that this is coming into his nightmares, manifesting as nightmares. But he clearly is cogent here. He's saying, no, this is not a nightmare. This is happening in my manifest reality. Again, though, that he doesn't have those terms to use. This is what he's trying to explain to her. But in her response, and even more so in his father's response that we'll see later, it's clear that they're getting frustrated because they already are a priori assuming these events can't be happening as they've been described as happening by this eight-year-old. So Terry, like many children in his place over the course of history, is between a rock and a hard place. He desperately wants help. He wants understanding, but he also doesn't want to upset his parents anymore, knowing that they already believe he is mistaking fantasy for reality and just causing too much familial disruption. But I want you to think about the setting, 1960s Americana, and what it must be like for Terry when he has these kinds of experiences. And that cues the next experience we're going to discuss when he sees a UFO in broad daylight. Quoting from the book again, quote, I was in the backyard shooting arrows into a block of hay. I was proud. This was an adult bow and arrow set for target shooting. Looking back, I'd never give one of my children such a lethal weapon when they were eight. It really was a different time in so many ways back then. While I was loading an arrow's notch onto my bowstring, I saw a dark shadow move across the grass under my feet. I assumed it was a cloud, but the shadow made a perfect circle. I looked up. There was a large silver disc-shaped object directly over my head. I was dumbstruck. My eyes tried to take in all the details. My mind raced through everything I knew about things that could fly. What could this be? Could it hurt me? Airplanes and helicopters I immediately dismissed. The only thing left on my mental checklist was perhaps a balloon or dirigible of some sort. But balloons are not made of aluminum and dirigibles aren't round. Balloons don't sit perfectly still in the spring breeze. Whatever this was, it was something I'd never seen before. I was overwhelmed. It was exciting, too. This thing made no noise and wobbled slightly in the breeze. I'd estimate it was no more than 50 feet over my head. For some odd reason, I felt compelled to put down my bow and lie down on the freshly mowed lawn and stare up at the thing for a better view. In hindsight, of course, that made no sense. But that's what I did, and that puzzles me to this day. This thing was amazingly beautiful. It was shiny and gorgeous in the way a brand new sports car is gorgeous. I called the body silver at the time. It could have been highly polished aluminum or God knows what. Its edges curled upward, but otherwise it was perfectly flat like a pancake. 
I remember being sorely disappointed I couldn't see the top of it. I wanted to see if there were windows. On a bottom, there were no openings or doorways of any kind, no seams or rivets. There wasn't an exhaust pipe. There was nothing printed on it. I expected to see USAF or even CCCP painted on the bottom. There were no insignias or numbers. The bottom was one seamless piece of shiny metal. Having assembled more than a few plastic model planes, I had a vague idea of how mechanical things were put together. I thought there should be rivets or seams visible. Whatever this was, it had to have been put together. I wish there were windows so I could see who was driving. There could be a dome or something sitting on the top. Where did the wheels come down if it launched to land? My mind continued racing. This is anecdotal, but there was an odd static electric charge in the air. I felt the fine hairs on my forearms stand up. I could smell the freshly mowed grass and ionized air. It was the scent of fresh air after a thunderstorm mixed with the sweet smell of the cut grass. There was a change in the acoustics as well. I remember that the whole neighborhood was silent. There were no cars or TVs blaring from open windows. There was nothing. I lay flat on my back looking up with a mixture of fear and amazement. This was something new. It was broad daylight in a neighborhood usually full of children. Surely dozens of people were staring at this thing just like me at that very minute." Unquote. Now this section I just read from demonstrates just how bizarre, how amazing these incidents can be. Because this is happening in broad daylight when there are undoubtedly other people around, including other children in the neighborhood. And not surprisingly, a young Terry Lovelace assumes that other people are seeing this as well. We should also note here the smell of ionization and a sense of a magnetic charge in the air. All of these elements are quite common in these kinds of experiences. Now, speaking of that, people like Dr. Hal Putoff, when discussing these specific kinds of elements that are common to these kinds of cases, have suggested that perhaps time has been slowed at this point by these others, which effectively makes the UFO invisible to others, but that manipulation of the environment shows up in the way that people who are experiencers pick up that kind of ionized smell and that magnetic charge and the fact that the surroundings seem suddenly uncannily silent. Now, in regards to Putoff's hypothesis that perhaps they are slowing time in these situations, think about it this way. Think about subliminal advertising. The idea there is that advertisers can actually insert images that appear so quickly between frames in an image, for instance, the video that you see, that your conscious brain doesn't actually pick up that you saw that image. And yet, nevertheless, your subconscious brain will pick it up and it can actually influence your behavior. And for the advertiser's point of view, hopefully influence what you purchase later on. And again, it's very sneaky because you're not even consciously aware of the experience. You don't even know it happened. That may be what's happening here, that because time can be manipulated by these others, or perhaps just our perception of time, then they could appear and sit over top of a experiencer like Terry Lovelace for minutes, perhaps even hours, and yet for everyone else around, perhaps that happens in a millisecond, so quickly that their conscious brains don't even pick up that anything was there. It's a fascinating hypothesis, and again, it fits with the elements that experiencers pick up, the ionized smell and the magnetic charge, etc. Now, once this UFO had zoomed off, 
Terry did what every young child is going to do in a situation like that. He ran inside, hooting and hollering that he'd just seen a UFO. Of course, his mother was horrified because, again, there's sort of the keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality of 1960s Americana in their neighborhood. And she was horrified that her son was saying such things out loud. Again, the assumption is this is not going to reflect well on the family and specifically on their parenting methods. Now, once Terry's father gets home from a hard day of manual labor, his mother immediately talks to him about what had just happened and how embarrassing it was. And the father immediately pulls Terry aside and says the following, quote, Son, you can't walk around the neighborhood and tell people you saw a flying saucer. They'll think something's wrong with you or with us. Understand? Yes, sir. I could tell my dad had reached his limit. Next, he would yell at me, and I didn't like being yelled at. He scared me when he yelled. It made me cry. Well, then, let's agree that whatever you saw, it was a shiny jet, okay? Then we can have some supper and stop all this nonsense. Everything will be okay. Now, son, tell me what you saw, he said, leaning back with his arms folded. I did the unthinkable. I lied. After a pause, I swallowed hard and said, Well, it could have been a jet. There, you see how these things are? Sometimes we can't believe our eyes. It's like the monkeys. It's all over and done with. Now we can put this whole thing to bed, Dad said, obviously pleased. Those would turn out to be a poor choice of words. The flying saucer matter wasn't put to bed. Our lies hadn't changed reality. What I saw was not a jet. What I saw was a real flying saucer. Unquote. Now, at this point, we're going to flash forward to Terry's adulthood, his young adulthood, when he's in the military, leading up to his experience at Devil's Den. But before we do that, I just want to make note of another element that was involved with his sighting of the UFO when he was a boy. Notice that he inexplicably decided to lie down calmly and look up at the UFO when he first saw it. He admits that that behavior doesn't make any sense to him. It didn't make sense then, and it doesn't make sense now, even when he thinks back on it all these decades later. Now, of course, this is a very common element of the UFO phenomenon. They can control our behavior. They can control our cognitive processing, our neurology. Seemingly, all of the electrochemical processes of our brain can be manipulated by them. And this happens frequently. And this is partly what makes it so difficult for experiencers to reckon with because they themselves do things that they can't explain. And when people are already likely to disbelieve them and assume that they're lying or making it up or are mentally unstable, then when they also share behavior that doesn't make sense even to them, it makes the stories even less credible to outside sources. Again, this adds to the stigma and it adds to the mystery of what's actually going on here and how these others are actually interacting with us. All right, so now let's flash forward to when Terry is in the military and has a friend named Toby that he's very close with. Now, Terry is just serving a few years in the military to pay off his education because he wants to go on and get a law degree. Likewise, his friend Toby wants to go on and study astrophysics. And in fact, Toby's interest in astronomy is partly what leads them to decide to go to Devil's Den, which is a state park area several hours away from where they are located. Now, part of the reason they believe they chose that location is because it is fairly remote. 
which allows Terry to take photography of wildlife, which was a hobby of his. And it would also allow Toby to take in the stars without light pollution from the city. At least that's their initial sense of why they chose that location. Later on, they come to question this rationality and believe that actually they were set up to go there, that they were directed to go there, basically, even if the direction happened at a subliminal, subconscious level. Basically, as the story goes, neither one of them had been campers. They hadn't camped in their lifetimes, either one of them. And yet Toby got in his mind that they should go camping for the first time and that furthermore, they should pick this location, which is several hours away from where they were stationed and pick a very remote location to, again, observe stars and to allow Terry to take pictures of wildlife. Now, right off the bat, things get very strange because, again, Terry's main goal is to take photographs. He's a fan of Ansel Adams' black and white photography in state parks and of wildlife, and he wants to emulate that kind of photography. But strange as it seems, and it certainly is strange when you think about what his goals were, they leave for the camping trip with Terry forgetting his camera altogether. His expensive, high-powered camera gets left behind, which is very interesting. This, again, happens a lot in the UFO phenomenon literature. People either just choose not to take pictures for whatever reason, or they forget to bring a camera at all. Now again, once they get to the state park area, rather than camping with other people, they decide, strangely, when you think about the fact that this is their first time ever camping, to go to a very remote location away from other people who are camping. In fact, they're camping in an illegal area, in an area that is actually closed off from campers altogether. And to be clear, in retrospect, Terry already believes this is behavior that is unexpected for them, for either one of them. These are young military men, and they wouldn't want to break the law like this. And so he doesn't understand why they chose that location. He doesn't believe it was of their volition at all. Now, a couple of strange events happen once they get to the campsite. There are two different events, in fact. But let's jump forward for a second to the point where they have set up camp and they're watching the stars. And they notice something strange in the corner of their eye. What they see is something that appears triangular and is seemingly not a star, but it seems too big to be believed. In fact, they are trying to ascertain how far away the object they're seeing actually is. And at this point, Toby says, and here I quote from the book, quote, Terry, man, that thing is in our atmosphere. It can't be outside of this solar system. No way. This thing is close. Man, I hope it's at cruising height. 35,000 feet would make me happy. No, I think it looks bigger because it's getting closer to us. It's really close. Toby said it first and confirmed what we were both thinking. That's a single solid object. No doubt about it. Watch it pass over a field of stars. They blink out for a second or two and then blink back on as it goes past. I noticed that too, Toby. With a feigned laugh, I said, I think that damn thing is headed toward us. I think it's coming to sail right over the top of us. Toby didn't say a word. Once more, I noticed how quiet the entire forest was. The crickets and tree frogs had not returned as Toby had predicted. It wasn't worth mentioning at the time. I felt uneasy, but not frightened, yet. I asked, Toby, are we safe here? Man, I sure hope so, Toby said. After a pause, he added, what could hurt us? I wasn't quite sure if that was a question requiring a reply. I said nothing. 
We both watched as its path placed it directly over the meadow. Then it abruptly stopped. Toby, it's not moving anymore, is it? Nope. It came to a halt directly over our heads. While we watched, the three points of the triangle spread further and further apart, eating up entire fields of stars as it grew. In a sky that was loaded with billions of stars, it was like someone cut a giant triangle out of the sky. This was a single object, and it was enormous. The three stars on each point of the triangle were so bright that the entire meadow glowed as brilliantly as the full moon. It was bright enough to cast shadows. All the anxiety had left me. Once it had parked over the meadow, all emotion left me. We lay on air mattresses, completely fascinated. We both just surrendered and let the calmness wash over us. It was pleasant, even soothing. Grabbing our marginal flashlight, Toby said, I'm going to try and signal it and see what happens. Before I could object, Toby picked up the flashlight he held on his lap. Aiming it straight up, he flashed the light three times. I said, man, that might get someone's attention. We waited to see what would happen. We didn't have to wait long for something to happen. In an instant, a beam of white light, no wider than a softball, was focused on our near-dead campfire. It was about eight feet from where we lay. The light beam itself was visible, like a high-powered searchlight shining through the fog. We never saw the beam descend. It was like someone threw a switch and there it was. It rested in the center of our fire pit. Looking up, we traced the source of the light beam. It came from below and center of the triangle. It stayed for no more than 30 seconds and was gone. Poof, it just shut off. A few minutes passed, then a blue light struck the campsite. It was tiny compared to white light, but much more intense. It was only the diameter of a pencil or narrower. Lasers were still a new concept in 1977. I'd seen them on television. Just like the white light that preceded it, this blue light originated from the center of the triangle. This intense blue light beam actively darted around the campsite. We never saw it move. Instead, it would blink out and a millisecond later, it was back on in a different spot. Striking haphazardly, it darted all over our campsite, never sitting on anything for more than a few seconds. It darted back and forth, and it had a hypnotic quality to it as we watched. I'm certain it landed on my leg and chest at least once. I saw it land on Toby once or twice, too. Then it abruptly stopped. It was with us for no longer than one or two minutes. With the blue light gone, we lay there silent and ambivalent. I had no emotion other than a pleasant feeling of sedation. This huge thing was still nearly over the meadow, and we just watched it without comment. Then Toby said something like, show's over, or words to that effect. I don't think I replied. Those were the last words spoken between us that evening. In unison, we picked up our air mattresses and crawled into our tent. I felt the need to keep my boots on unlaced up tightly. For that matter, I didn't bother to undress at all. The apathy felt all too familiar. These things, whatever they are and whoever they are, controlled our actions and our emotions. This was the same apathy I experienced in 1966. Thoughts about that 1966 experience flashed in my mind briefly. I was asleep the moment my head hit the inflated plastic pillow. The heat was tolerable now, almost pleasant, but the forest was still dead silent. The only sound was Toby snoring softly." Unquote. Now, as Lovelace notes in that section, 
there were several examples where their behavior, their emotions, seemed to be controlled by these others. Perhaps the most astonishing aspect here is that they go to bed without even unlacing their boots. And again, Lovelace later believes this is a direction from them, even if it was subconscious. Now, some time goes on, and then Lovelace wakes up. And when he wakes up, he becomes aware of his friend hyperventilating and looking outside the tent. At first, Terry is disoriented and isn't sure what's going on. This is what he says about that next event. Quote, It was the lights that woke me up. I first noticed the bright lights and then the low bass hum I'd heard before. Except this was more intense. Some flashes of light were bright enough to illuminate the tent's interior as if we'd had an overhead light. My eyes were sensitive to the lights. When I maneuvered my body to get to my knees, I realized I was in a lot of pain. Every bone in my body ached. I was insanely thirsty and scared too. I couldn't grasp what was happening to us and it was hard to shake off the sleep. I finally achieved a crouching position and my focus turned to Toby. Toby was on his knees inside the tent. He had opened the tent flap about two inches and was peering out at something in the meadow. He was crouching down and captivated by whatever was happening there. Again, he muttered something, but I couldn't make out what he was saying. The lights outside were multicolored greens and yellow, very bright and in quick doses like a camera flash or a strobe light. I was awake, but still in a fog. I wondered if this could be park rangers with flashlights, or maybe the headlights of a park service Jeep with emergency lights flashing. But these were multicolored lights. They just didn't fit. I was struggling to fully wake up. I had to claw my way to consciousness. It wasn't only the lights. There was also that droning sound. At first, I thought it was noise made by a generator. Who would be running a generator in the bed of a pickup truck? Game poachers, maybe? The flashes of light illuminated the inside of the tent just enough to catch an image now and then. I saw Toby was trembling like a man in the cold. I realized I was trembling too. I reached for the flashlight and Toby roughly snatched it from my hand. He held his finger across his lips and whispered, Be quiet, they're still out there. I was shocked. In the flashes of light, I could see tracks down Toby's cheeks. He'd been crying. This is a man I knew well. We were first responders and we'd been through some dangerous moments together as a team. Toby could be relied upon to keep his head and not panic in an emergency. This felt like an emergency. What could move Toby to tears? Toby continued to shush me when I tried to speak. With my voice just above a whisper, I asked, Toby, what is it? Tell me what's wrong. Are there park rangers outside? Toby shook his head no and stayed fixated on whatever was happening outside our tent. I noticed his breathing was shallow and quick, nearly panting. I kept my voice at a whisper. Toby, man, you got to slow your breathing down. You're hyperventilating. Toby, you've got to tell me what's going on, damn it. Then I froze. I was startled by motion outside the tent. There were shadows crossing between the tent and the source of the lights. I heard footsteps too. There was a rustling of leaves and grass. I had the impression maybe a dozen people were walking around the campsite. We both froze until the noises stopped. The apathy we'd experienced before bed was long gone. In its place was abject terror and panic. I tried once more to get through to my friend. Toby, tell me what happened. Tell me who's out there. But why even ask? I knew who was out there. I knew them. Toby didn't answer me. I thought he was in shock. Frustrated, I struggled to my knees to see what was going on in the meadow. 
With my left arm, I pushed Toby back a bit and gathered the courage to look for myself. I was fully awake now, and the mental fog had mostly lifted. Squeezing next to Toby, I pulled back the canvas, and there it was. This wasn't a flying saucer at all. It was something else, something much bigger. This was something I had never seen before and was unprepared for. It was so gigantic that it filled every inch of the meadow. It sat motionless in midair. I estimated it to be 30 feet off the meadow floor. Then it registered. Of course, this is the thing we watched last night. Before we went to sleep in the tent, we had been staring at something in the sky. I remembered we were watching the triangle in the sky, but it was about 2,500 feet above us last evening. This was the thing that generated so much disinterest in us just hours earlier? Unbelievable. Now it was 30 feet over the meadow. We could see two sides clearly. There were randomly dispersed square panels of light on each side. It reminded me of a five-story office building at night, with offices lit here and there on every floor. Along the very top was a row of larger windows that slanted outward. They were all lit. I saw faint shadows and movement behind these larger panels. These larger panels stretched the entire length of the two sides of the triangle we could see. The forest was quiet, but for a low droning sound that reverberated in my chest. Toby shoved his way over my left shoulder now, and we watched together. We saw figures walking and milling around underneath this thing. My God, they were children, maybe a dozen or more kids all about the same height. They were milling about in small groups of two or three. I whispered to Toby, What the hell are children doing here underneath this giant thing in the middle of the night? There was fear in Toby's voice when he answered, Those ain't little kids. Those are not human beings, Terry. They took you too. They hurt us both, Terry. They hurt us. His voice faded into soft sobbing again. I placed my left arm across his shoulder and he leaned against me, crying like a child. Unquote. So let's pause there and step back and think back on what we've just read, what we've just discussed in terms of the case of Terry Lovelace, but also how his case has so much overlap with many, many other experiencer accounts. Like many experiencers, perhaps even most is more accurate to say, Terry's experiences began in childhood when he saw these so-called monkey men. That's what he nicknamed them because of the strange mask that they wore. And then later he had an experience where he saw a UFO in broad daylight, even though no one else saw it. Now, undoubtedly, these kinds of experiences were disorienting for Terry as a young child. But like many experiencers, this eventually goes into the background. As he grows older, these memories and these nightmares seem to fade to some degree. And he goes long periods without hearing from or seeing anything anomalous, paranormal, or related to UFOs or aliens whatsoever. And that's why we flash forward to this experience at Devil's Den, because there was a long period where nothing happened. But we shouldn't let that fool us. Clearly, it seems that the data is telling us that some people are selected from a very young age, perhaps from birth or before, because again, the data tells us that many of these are multi-generational scenarios where multiple generations are being abducted and perhaps having their genetics altered in some ways. The evidence suggests that perhaps three or four generations of this has already been going on in our civilization. Now, in the case of their camping trip, quote unquote, to Devil's Den State Park, 
We already made note of the fact that them even deciding to go there seemed like a setup of sorts, that that notion had been implanted in their minds, but it wasn't of their own volition. It wasn't their idea. This is basically an example of inception, where the idea is birthed in their minds by these others. And then once they get to the campsite, they decide to go to a very remote area away from everyone else. And in the case of the campsite, they decide to go to sleep without even undressing or unlacing their boots, which when you look back on what happens later, seems like it's a prime example of these others prepping these two men for an abduction that's going to happen. Now, when Terry later wakes up after the abduction has happened, they both see these small figures, these small gray aliens that Terry mistakes for children walking around outside. Before long, these small aliens walk underneath the light that is being projected from the center of this massive triangular craft, and they seem to then be materialized straight up into the craft, and then it slowly and then more rapidly departs from the area. The two men sit in terror for some period of time before deciding they want to get out of there. They do not want to spend the rest of the night. They are ready to get going. So mustering all of their strength and their courage, they rush to their car and start driving back. Now again, what's interesting here is their behavior is not as predicted because neither one of them wants to talk about what happened. They just both seem to be kind of mute and drive back silently. Once they get home, both of their wives are surprised they're back early and wonder why. But it's very clear based on the physiological condition of these two men that something traumatic has happened. And so it is arranged for them to have a medical checkup done at the military hospital. Once they have answered some basic questions, and they're very careful to not say too much because they don't want to reveal what really happened for fear that they'll be discharged for being considered crazy. But nevertheless, they share enough that seems to trip some sort of flag that gets the attention of the upper echelons of the military establishment. And they are soon visited by agents that ask them a series of questions, even though they're still both in a very rough shape. And as I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, they end up undergoing a very intense investigation by the USAF Office of Special Investigations. They are even given a truth drug to make sure that they tell the truth, and then they are hypnotized. Specifically, we hear about Terry's situation, where he is hypnotized, and the questions that he is asked. And what's astonishing about this case is that it seems that the military knows more than they are letting on. That something about the two men's story tips off the military that this must have been an abduction case, that they saw something to do with a UFO and perhaps alien beings. The nature of the ensuing interrogation makes that very clear. These military agents seem to know much more than they should if this is an unknown phenomena for the military. But no, they seem to know plenty. And in fact, the person that is interrogating them, hypnotizing them, makes side comments to these agents saying that much of what these men have experienced is very common. The apathy, the control of behavior, what they see on board the craft, etc. It seems to follow a narrative that the military is very familiar with, and that is fascinating and perhaps disturbing. I'm sure you'll agree. Now, next time on Point of Convergence, we will pick up where we leave off here, discussing in detail the military's strange response, including the nature of the hypnotic regression session they are subjected to, as well as the series of events that lead to the sudden end of Toby and Terry's friendships, as well as Terry decades on finding alien implants inside his leg, 
as well as the process of him coming to peace with the experience and then deciding to go public. We'll also discuss an apparent hybrid being that seemed to watch over Terry and try to comfort him when these abduction experiences were happening. We'll also discuss this hybrid's warning that by going public, Terry is putting his life at risk, but not by the hand of the aliens, but rather by the hands of the military that knows what Terry knows. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian signing out.